in desperation to cover his sin of lustful adultery, David hatches a series of plans, all of which fail, until he contemplates the unthinkable, the murder of Uriah, the legitimate husband of Bathsheba. This is the 22nd sermon in the series Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. We're all covenant reading coming from 2 Samuel and chapter 11. 2 Samuel and chapter 11, the entire chapter, first 27 verses 1 through 27. 2 Samuel chapter 11, as God records to us David's crimes within the kingdom. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass, in an evening tide, that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house, And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And she came in unto him, and he lay with her. For she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. And David sent to Joab saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was come unto him, David demanded of him how Joab did and how the people did and and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house. And there followed him a mess of meat from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and went not down to his house. And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down unto his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then didst thou now go down unto thine house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel... And Judah abide in tents, and my lord Joab, and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go into mine house to eat, and to drink, and to lie with my wife? As thou livest, and as thy soul livest, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, Tarry here today also, and tomorrow I will let thee depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day, and tomorrow... And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. And at even he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in a letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and retire ye from him, that he may be smitten and die. It came to pass, when Joab observed the city, that he assigned Uriah unto a place where he knew that valiant men were. And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab, and there fell some of the people and the servants of David, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war, and charged 
the messenger, saying, When thou hast made an end of telling the matters of the war unto the king, if so be that the king's wrath arise, and he say unto thee, Wherefore approachest ye so nigh unto the city when ye did fight? Knew ye not that they would shoot from the wall, who smote Abimelech, the son of Jerobsheth, did not a woman cast a piece of a millstone upon him from the wall that he died in Thebes? Why went ye nigh the wall? Then say thou, thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and showed David all that Job had sent him for. And the messenger said unto David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out unto us in the field. Then we were upon them, even unto the entering of the gate. And the shooter shot from off the wall upon thy servants, and some of the king's servants be dead. And thy servant Uriah, the Hittite, is dead also. Then David said unto the messenger, Thus shalt thou say unto Joab, Let not this thing displease thee, for the sword devoureth one as well as another. Make thy battle more strong against the city, and overthrow it, and encourage thou him. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. By the same spirit, the Apostle James writes in chapter 1, beginning in 13 through verse 16, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted, when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, he bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. As far as the reading of God's most holy and errant and fondly authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever by his holy word. Once again, it's God's warning given to us this day. Now, as a result of David's indiscretion, both he and Bathsheba are placed in a very difficult, even a dreadfully dangerous situation. The depth of this situation, however, did not only affect David and Bathsheba. It would destroy David's family and affect the entire nation of Israel. Since David represented the nation as his covenant head, the nation would finally have to navigate this dreadful situation, especially if the sin was ever made public. The question, however, was not if the sin was made public. It was actually a matter of when the sin would be made public. And so the woman conceives and sends to David and tells him that she is with child. And so by diving headlong into this sinfully rebellious act of adultery, David places himself, Bathsheba, Bathsheba's husband Uriah, David's family, and his entire dynastic legacy, even the entire nation in peril. Here is a systemic destruction of everything that David held dear originally. Now that the woman was a child, David is brought to a crossroads. He has to make some very, very difficult decisions. But before we consider what David should have done, obviously, confess, repent, we first might ask, why did David act the way he did in the first place? 
Perhaps David thought that he could outwit God. I could have any woman I want. I could outwit God. I can engage in all kinds of illicit, adulterous affairs without so much as anyone being the wiser. I'm the king. But again, God will never be mocked. David was about to realize in the most experiential and experimental fashion that God will never be mocked and that whatsoever man sows, that also shall he reap. David miscalculated God. He calculated God's response to his sin of adultery, his rebellion. Bathsheba was now with child. His child, which put David in a real jam. Because if this situation was not remedied, it would expose David's sin, and that's the last thing that the king wants. Because he should have been out fighting, and yet he was out lusting. So David is now placed in a very desperate situation. And desperate men do desperate things. The first question one might ask is, Why wouldn't David just simply confess, knowing the mercy of God, knowing the goodness of God, taking his punishment as he deserved? Why wouldn't he just simply confess and just take his beatings as as they came? Get what he deserved. Certainly this was the biblical response. Confession is always the biblical response. Embrace the shame, one thing that David didn't want to do, Embrace the shame and submit to God's chastisements and the repercussions that sin brings. That would be the courageous man. That would be the man of faith. But at this point, David is not a courageous man. He simply wants to hide his sin. Now, one possibility is this. If David was concerned about his pride and how things would look if the king took advantage of a girl from the community who just so happened to be another man's wife, it would put the king in a very compromised light before his subjects. For a prideful man, this is unacceptable. Shame is unacceptable. Especially if there may be a way to hide the sin. This was a disgusting act of lust. And David didn't want to be shamed. It's as simple as that. He didn't want to shame. He wanted to keep up appearances As an upright, honorable, holy man of God, his desire was to avoid placing any dark blotch upon his name. But the result was he drove him to murder. Sadly, the refusal to bear the shame of his sin, which he should have owned, is a character trait of the wicked. Or someone like David, who's a godly man, or God loved him, at that point, he lost his mind. He became what he never should have become. Speaking of the wicked, Jeremiah comments on this. He says in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 12, Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. Therefore shall they fall among them that fall. In their time of visitation, they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. So David refused to Blush, he refused to own his shame, deciding not to bear any public disgrace, no matter what the cost, even if it meant the murder of an innocent man. Indicting David for many things, including hypocrisy, John Calvin gives us this advice. He says, the hypocrisy was that David was concerned about men, but he turned his back on God 
and despised his majesty. How incredibly stupid he must have been to have done that. On the other hand, he always wanted to be highly esteemed and to maintain his reputation with men. But if that was the case, why did he lower himself to such vicious misbehavior? Who but himself had ravished his own honor and yet he wanted to maintain it in spite of what he now was? We see that this attitude is commonly held by everyone. For instead of trembling, as we should, when we have provoked God, it does not bother us nearly enough. It is true that we are affected for a time, but not to the very depths of our being. We quench as much sin as we can all the remorse that we feel and which could lead us to repentance. Yet we fight to seem honorable all the time and to keep our reputation unblemished and unembarrassed before men. Yet it is our own misdeeds which accuse us. Let us therefore learn to bear our shame before all the world, since we have merited it. And let us realize that we have gained nothing from all the many tricks and stratagems used to keep our will from being known, for God will always show it to us, end quote. Powerful, powerful statement. The second possibility is that David did not want to hinder his generational legacy. He was trying to build a dynasty. He had dynastic ambition. But ironically, that is exactly what he did. By violating Bathsheba's marriage covenant, he destroyed his dynasty. He destroyed his legacy. He destroyed any ambition for a dynastic heritage. The third possibility may even be more of a motive not to disclose the sin is that adultery is a capital offense, even for kings. What is ironic about this is that the cover-up would become just as much a capital crime as the adultery. In order to escape the shame, David believed that he could manufacture a situation where an accidental death might occur. If he could pull that off, perhaps he would be exonerated from the murderous plot to kill Uriah. It it was an accident. You know, people die in battle. The just, the unjust. It just so happened that that's what happened. And so David hatches a devilish plan to conceal his sin. What David didn't count on is the one thing that so many of us don't count on is that your sin always finds you out. You cannot hide from God. Children, make note of that. You cannot hide from God. You may hide from mommy, you may hide from daddy, but you cannot hide from God. Nor can you outsmart God as David tried to outmaneuver God. I think I can outmaneuver God. Nor can you excuse treachery, as David tried by saying, I didn't know, he went to the wall and he got killed. Consider David's plan. First, David sends for Joab to call Uriah so that David and Uriah could speak together. This was plan A. Plan A was to encourage Uriah to go home to his wife so that they might lie together so that It seems as if the baby's Uriah's. What a great idea. I can get away with all of these things. Just get Uriah back from the battle. Send him home. Surely he's going to be hungering and thirsting for a little comfort from home. 
So if David could convince Uriah that the baby would be his, he could be free. No one would be the wiser. Certainly, being in the battle with the men might be a welcome reprieve for Bathsheba's husband, maybe even for Bathsheba, since he had been away from his wife for so long of a time. You know, to think about it, he's in the battle there with, with, with blood and guts and all these fighting and smelly men. Why not go home and wash yourself and feel good? So David becomes the tempter. David becomes the seducer. If he could convince Uriah to go home, then the child could then be his. This was pure deception. Adam Clark comments, notice he says, Uriah had come off of a journey and needed this refreshment. But David's design was that he should go and lie with his wife, that the child now conceived should pass for his. The honor of Bathsheba be screened and his own crime concealed. Now once Uriah is set before David, David shows just how seductive and calculating and deceitful he really is by beginning his conversation with small talk as to the affairs of the, of the battle. He's, oh, how did, how's it going over there, Uriah? And David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was come to him, David demanded of him how Joab did. So how's Joab doing? How are the people? How's the war progressing? A little small talk, soften him up a little bit. It is also very ironic that David would inquire of Uriah about the progress of the battle and how Joab, his war chief, is doing. Because if David was so interested in the battle, why was he there in the battle? It was the season for him to be in the battle. And now he's so interested. If you're so interested, why aren't you there? It was indeed the time when kings were to go out to war. And yet David was obviously not interested. He was more interested in another man's wife rather than in the Lord's battle. And so David doesn't telegraph his real intentions. Instead, he launches a deceptive query as to how things were to go on, how things were going on in the battlefield. If David would come right out and told Uriah to go home to be with his wife, it might have raised some questions. But David is very crafty. He's subtle here, even as the serpent that he's become. And so he begins with subtlety. It doesn't seem that at this time, at least in David's mind, at this moment, his plan was to murder Uriah. At least not initially, at least not yet. And so, once David lulls Uriah into a false sense of security, he poses the real reason for his summoning Bathsheba's husband. And David said to Uriah, verse 8, Go down to thy house, and wash thy feet. That was his plan. Go to your house and wash your feet. And so David bids him to go to be with his wife. And Uriah departs out of the king's house. And to be sure that he would have a very romantic evening with Bathsheba, he sends him a banquet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. David wants to make sure that they're going to have a great time. Note David's desperation for plan A to work. He sends him a banquet. Once again, God will not be mocked. God moves Uriah to refuse to go home to his wife. Verse 9. 
But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and went not down to his house. Here is, is a man committed to God's business, committed to the king's business, committed to honor. Herein is a man of honor who is duty bound to the honor of the Lord and the honor of his king, the honor of his king, the king who he's honoring, who just committed an affair with his wife, yet committed to the king who had violated his trust by seducing his wife. How incredibly insane and bizarre is this? Now, of course, you're right, they know this. Nevertheless, herein is a man of godly honor, a man who feared God. He refuses to go down to his wife while his brethren are in the heat of the battle on the battlefield. And this was a smack in the face of David, who should have been in the battle himself, but instead he had gone into Bathsheba. And it is here we see the contrasts between the king and Uriah the Hittite. Uriah is a man of duty, a man duty-bound. David shirked his duty, not going into the battle when he should have. Uriah is a conscientious man of resolve, devotion, and tenacity. David was taking his ease on his roof without a care for his men on the field of battle. Uriah, at this point, is a man very much unlike David, who should have had the resolve, duty, and tenacity to be in the battle as it was his appointed time to be so. When questioned about Uriah's strange conduct, Uriah tells this to the king. And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down unto his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then didst not thou go down unto thine house? What's with you, son? Why are you... This is a perfect opportunity. And Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel and Judah, they abide in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go into mine house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul livest, I will not do this thing. From the king's questioning, it seems as if David is confused. What in the world is with you? What in the world is with this man, Uriah? What in the world is he thinking? Why why won't you go? Your wife is beautiful. She's waiting for you in the bedchamber. I'm telling you to go. Why aren't you not going? She seduced me, even from afar. And you know all of her beauty, even up close, intimately. What is wrong with you? And I'll tell you what's wrong with the man. God is intervening in his life. God is teaching David a lesson. Because David knew if it was the other way about, he would have right there been in that bedchamber. He would have jumped at that opportunity to be home with Bathsheba. Not so with this honorable Hittite. Uriah mentions a number of things here. Notice his reasoning. First he mentions the ark of God. Then the tribes of Israel and Judah, Joab, his captain, and all the servants of the king. These were his comrades who were away from their own wives and who could very possibly never be back with their wives if they're killed in the battle because some of them were being killed in battle. They were placing themselves in harm's way for the glory of the king and for the kingdom of God. Why should he go and have the comfort of his wife? 
Calvin again explains why Uriah's defense shows that he is a man who fears God and seeks the honor of his majesty. Notice what Calvin says, quote, We see what great reverence he had for God when he mentioned in the first place the ark of God and then added all the people. Also, on the other hand, he showed to Joab, his captain in chief, the honor of which he was worthy. And on the other, he especially honored King David. Above all, he put God first, which indeed he deserved. Therefore, we see clearly in this sentence how Uriah was a man who feared God and had his heart in religion. For he would not have spoken of the ark unless through it he had been mastered by the honor of God and eager to give him the honor that he deserved. Notice the phrase that Calvin uses. And he had been mastered by the honor of God. That's all he cared about. Honoring God. Although David's plan A was frustrated, he's no less determined to get the man home to Bathsheba. And so David orchestrates plan B. And David said to Uriah, Tarry here also today and tomorrow I will let thee depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and tomorrow. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. And at even, and at even, he went out to lie in his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down unto his house. So, first David keeps Uriah around for a few days, wear him down a little bit. Hoping he can wear him down, wear him down. Bathsheba's right there, you're over here, she's over there, you're over here. You're not in the battle, you're here, she's over there, wear you down. That didn't work. Seeing that plan B may not work, David augments his plan B and he executes plan C. In plan C, David tries to seduce him into going home by making him drunk. But again... That plan fails miserably. This was David's third attempt at covering his sin. Now David's desperation turns to panic, fueling his fear that he might be found out and he begins to panic. And in a last ditch effort, David hatches the death plan. And what is so insane about this plan is that David writes it out and gives it to Uriah to deliver it to Joab. He writes out Uriah's death sentence and gives it to the man who's going to be killed by the death sentence and says, deliver it to Joab. And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Who would do that? This was a callous and cynical act, very much unlike the character of David, the the David we knew, the David we loved, who's a man after God's own heart. And God is teaching us that once we follow the path of sin, our entire godly character is eclipsed to the point where it almost is completely blacked out. And this is where David, at this moment in his life, he is not only in the darkness, he becomes the darkness. By sending this letter by the hand of Uriah, was there not a risk that Uriah would sneak a peek at the letter and know what the king was up to? That, of course, was a possibility. David knew that. But David also knew that Uriah was an honorable man and it was not in his character to violate the secrecy that the king entrusted with him. Furthermore, it was customary in that day all regal correspondence letters were sealed with some form of wax or another adhesive to keep prying eyes from its contents. So that letter of death was secure. So David takes advantage of the man. Not only taking advantage of his wife, he takes advantage of the man 
He takes advantage of the man's righteousness and loyalty, making him even more like Judas than like Christ. Incredibly, David gives Uriah his own death sentence. How cold is that? So once Joab receives the letter, as it has been said, the fox is now in the hen house, and it is certain that now the feathers will fly. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and retire ye from him. Pull back, in other words, that he may be smitten and die. We see here that David sends these instructions to a man, Joab, who has the testimony of being a murderer in his own right. Why not give it to Joab? He'll kill the guy. He doesn't care. What does he care? He's got no scruples. He tells Joab that Uriah should be sent into the hottest battle and that no one should support him. Rather, they should leave him to be overrun by the enemy and killed. And David here is using everyone now to cover his sin. He is manipulating everyone in this conspiracy to cover his adultery so as not to bear the shame and repercussions of his sinful action. And this is the pattern of a sociopath. This is not the king that we knew. At this point, David cares for no one but himself and he will go to any extent to preserve his position as king. At this point, God has completely lifted his hand of restraint from David to show him a lesson that he will never forget and a lesson that we should never forget. David obviously, David obviously uses Bathsheba to agree to lie with her husband should he return home. She was waiting. Then he tries to manipulate Uriah and hope that he will do what is natural for a husband who has been apart from his wife for some time. David then uses his office as king to encourage Uriah to return home. He then uses the wealth of the royal house in providing a banquet as a seducing force. He uses strong drink to dull Uriah's resolve in hope that he will finally go into his wife. And then he uses Joab, who he knows will keep the secret because he too is a murderer. He uses also all of Israel's army by commanding them to fall back in the heat of the fight, leaving Uriah alone. He then uses the enemies of Israel to kill Uriah, whom he knows will go willingly to the front lines to fight for the glory of God. He's using everybody for his own wickedness. John Calvin again weighs in. He says, Now here David went a step deeper into evil, for he not only offended God, but drew his own servants into the same guilt so that he was guilty not only for his own sin, but also for the sin of those whom he used as pimps. Now this indeed is the darkest period of David's life, and it is heartbreaking, which shows us that once we go down the path of sin, we are going down the path of perdition, which we may never return from, at least not without much damage. There is another lesson for us to contemplate. It doesn't matter how elevated you have become by the grace of God. It doesn't matter who you think you are or who you are. If you violate His holy commandments, there is no guarantee that you will be taken down, that you will not be taken down from your high and lofty position as God did with David. David was at the pinnacle of of human existence. Not only the king, but God's king. God is showing that whenever we seek rebellion over against obedience, 
We run the risk of God's hand of restraint being lifted from us in order to teach us lessons that we will never forget. And I can guarantee David never forgot this lesson. For David, these lessons would not only be etched into his mind forever, they would be the undoing of his entire future. The Reverend Long observes, he says, the tragic episode recounted in 2 Samuel 11 illustrates two fundamental truths. First, success poses dangers. The danger comes when we begin to take things easily and choose the convenient paths. David seems to have been at his best when he was in the wilderness and in danger. Once settled in his palace, David appears to have been taking things easily. His very success placed him in greatest danger than he could ever have suspected. Second, David's experience teaches that prayerful vigilance is needed, especially for those who have arrived, quote unquote. No one is immune from the temptation to do evil. Let me repeat that. No one is immune from the temptation to do evil. He continues. Sin crouches at the door, even at the door of a palace. End quote. David kindled an evil fire by taking Bathsheba to his bed. Now that same fire would destroy his testimony and possibly his entire household. Job hatches the dictate of his king in verse 16. And it came to pass when Job observed the city that he assigned Uriah unto a place where he knew that valiant men were. Another question is, why would Job follow the king's instruction knowing full well that this might be a death sentence for Uriah? Now, it is unlikely that Joab simply thought that Uriah was so brave and valiant that he could be instrumental in taking the city for David's kingdom all by himself without the aid of the army. It is more likely that Joab knew the plan of this murder and wanted to return into the king's good graces after killing Abner. See, Joab is a manipulative character. He's saying, well, if I do this for the king, if I cover his sin, you know, he's going to cover my sin and I'm not going to get any repercussions for killing Abner, which was premeditated murder. So he's playing the game. It's all manipulation. It's all, it's all spycraft. So it's more likely that Job knew of the plan, just wanted to return into the king's good graces. This would have been a perfect opportunity to show the king that he was a loyal subject and there's nothing to worry about Joab. The opportunist that he was to advance his office, his position as war chief, he would do anything to achieve his goal. There's another possibility. The fact is that there were those in Jerusalem that knew about the adultery and it may have leaked to Joab who had his spies everywhere. Remember, Joab was David's war chief and he was a very influential man. It is therefore possible that Job might have known or at least suspected of David's intent. He might have even decided maybe later on I could blackmail the king. It places Job in a very powerful position with the king, hanging it over his head in order to get whatever he wanted from David in the future. You're dealing with manipulative men. What Joab knew was that he had power if he executed this dreadful, dreadful crime. And so for whatever reason, he obeys the king's orders. And so as the battle rages, Uriah is sent to the wall of the city and according to the plan and the hope of the king, Uriah is killed. When the news reaches David, he shamelessly continues in his deception by putting on an act as if he never wanted the men to approach the wall of the city for being killed. 
And of course, Joab brings this to the attention of the messenger by saying, no, David, hopefully David will say, you should have gone through the wall. Didn't you remember the history of the woman that threw a millstone from the wall? But David's response to Uriah's death is so disturbing. We don't see him even at this point falling on his face saying, what have I done? You would think at this point, what have I done? Instead, David says to the messenger, Thus shalt thou say unto Joab, Let not this thing displease thee, for the sword devoureth one as well as another. Make thy battle more strong against the city, and overthrow it, and encourage thou him. Now while it's true that in the battle some die and some don't, that's the nature of warfare. What's so disturbing about David's response is that no remorse here. We don't see him lamenting over the death of his honorable man. David just sent a man to his execution. It was a planned execution and David hatched that plan. He knew it. His response is cold, even to the point of reviling the situation. Say, well, you know, it's a no big deal. People die in battle. His response is cold. It seems as if he's relieved that his plan has finally taken root and he's off the hook. But another problem is this. It's just incredible. He doesn't send condolences to Bathsheba. He sends condolences to Joab. Why would he do that? Well, because David is more concerned that Israel wins the battle than with the death of an innocent man. And so he tells Joab not to be discouraged that Uriah was killed, executed, so that might prevent them from gaining the victory. Make that battle strong, more strong against the city. Overthrow it. Let's get the victory. Adam Clark observes David's actions. He says, what abominable hypocrisy was here. He well knew that Uriah's death was no chance. Uriah was, by David's own order, thrust through by the edge of the sword. So when the news finally reaches Bathsheba, she responds by mourning for her husband, which is proper. In verse 26, And when the wife of Uriah had heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. Now here the writer is careful to identify Bathsheba, not just by her name, but as the wife of Uriah, her husband making the point once again that she was indeed the legitimate wife of another man whom David had unlawfully taken. Bathsheba's mourning details seem to be glossed over. The typical period of mourning was a mere seven days. So we don't read anywhere that she was sorrowful, or she couldn't eat, she was distraught, or that she had gone into a complete depressed meltdown for, over the loss of her husband. We don't read any of that. Just that she mourned seven days. Was she relieved? That Uriah was dead? Because that was her sin too. She might have even been party to the entire affair. Was she relieved then that her husband was dead so that her sin would not be exposed? Uriah had an opportunity to be with her when he had returned from the battle. He didn't. Was that an insult? Uriah was more interested in his army buddies than his wife. But the king, oh, the king, no, not the king. The king likes me. My husband didn't want to lay with me. My husband didn't want to be with me. He could have been. But the king likes me. Maybe it's a good thing. King wanted me. King lusted after me. King thought I was beautiful. The king believed that I was pleasing. And that all was a boost to her feminine ego. And so upon hearing of Uriah's death, she only weeps, I believe, with only one eye. 
now having her sights on a greater prospect. Now she's got the throne of Jerusalem and the kingdom of God and the nation of Israel. Adam Clark again cuts Bathsheba no comfort, no excuses. He says, quote, the whole of her conduct indicates that she observed the form without feeling the power of sorrow. She lost a captain and got a king for her spouse. This must have been a deep affliction indeed, and therefore she shed reluctant tears and forced out groans from a joyful heart, end quote. David then wastes no time in calling her to be his wife for fear that if too much time elapses, the truth would be known and David and Bathsheba would be found out. This might also bring suspicion upon the king for the murder of Uriah. And of course, that David could not have that. So David calls Bathsheba to his home to be his wife so that when her son is born, there would be no suspicion. We see this in verse 27. Clark again comments, he says, This hurried marriage was no doubt intended on both sides, notice, on both sides to cover the pregnancy. The last line, however, is really telling and very ominous. While David now thinks that all is well, that he got away with something, that his sin now is hidden from the eye of men and the watchful eye of God, all actually is not well, not at all. God was wroth. God was very angry. Notice, the scripture says, but the thing that David did had displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, unfortunately, the King James Version uses the word displeased as if what God did, really God was disappointed. David, how could you do that? This is really bad. Not so. The word in its root form actually signifies an evil thing. The verse should probably be translated out of the Hebrew that the thing that David did was wicked. It was evil. How could it not be? How could it be anything else? This was not something that just displeased God. This made God wroth. He was angry because David did an evil thing. The Reverend Scott closes with these observations. He says, quote, David married Bathsheba as soon as it could be done with decency and the customary mourning, which was in this case a vile mockery, was ended. But though there remained no injured husband to avenge the adultery, the premature birth of the child would discover it. All this time, as it appears from the narrative, David continued impenitent and comparatively unconcerned. Probably, he still attended on the ordinances of religion. Though he had no deep remorse of conscience, we may be sure that he lost all spirituality and comfort in religion. For small transgressions like slight wounds give much pain to the believer's conscience, but enormous crimes like a violent blow upon the head leave him for a season in an unaccountable state of insensibility. End quote. Business as usual, with no remorse, until finally brings down the hammer. We shall return to this sad story to discover the severity of David's chastisement, the depth of his sorrow, and the unmerited atoning mercy of God when we return to our exposition of Second Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.